0: how's everyone doing now Uh, do you guys hey who came to my first lecture today oh good job you you, so so that means uh, i didn't disappoint you i guess you enjoyed the lecture Um, actually the first presentation we gave today was on uh, regenerative medicine and and, uh, one of the things we had talked about in that lecture briefly was inflammation and i had touched on this idea of central inflammation so um, we'll get into that a little more um, in this lecture so today's lecture is is uh, central sensitization and ketamine or, and, and how ketamine can be used in an infusion format to help with central pain. Uh, this is a topic that, um, that, that really I, I uh, am very passionate about. I know that's an overused term, but, uh, but I don't know any other word to sort of describe it. Um, my background, again, is anesthesiology. I did an uh, anesthesiology residency, did a fellowship in interventional pain management, and, uh, and, and that's what we do in the Chicago area. Ketamine infusions have been something that I have performed for patients for over a decade. So definitely you know, one of the pioneers in this field. A lot of the um, uh, protocols on the outpatient side are some that are kind of mimicked now by other uh, providers. And, um, and this has been something that I've uh, spoken about and fought for in terms of both understanding as well as logistical um, delivery uh, for years. And, and it seems to be catching some headwind now finally uh but i want to make sure that uh, and thank you for coming because i want to make sure that everyone here understands what is central sensitization and they understand what is what ketamine is as a molecule and they understand what a ketamine infusion is Um, so that way hopefully you're you're a little more well versed um, in terms of the facts and and some of the challenges too so disclosures nothing to disclose for this presentation our objectives today Again, discuss the, the landscape of pain management, just give an overview of what's going on in pain management. Uh, different types of pain. We, we really can't delve into treatment of conditions or even central sensitization as a uh, specific definition until we understand what the four types of pain are. Okay? Uh, then we'll delve into one of those types of pain, which is central sensitization. We'll talk about ketamine uh, as a molecule, as a medication, as a drug. Uh, the mechanism of action. Uh, We'll talk about ketamine infusions briefly. What are ketamine infusions and and how, you know, are they done? Um, And finally, discuss barriers to treatment, you know, uh, really reflecting back on current as well as uh, challenges that I've faced personally for over a decade trying to educate not only the general public and insurance companies, but providers specifically uh, so we can sort of break down these barriers and these myths about what we're actually doing here. Um, All right, so definition of pain. We all know that uh, pain has a very specific definition by the International Association for the Study of Pain, and their definition is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in such terms. So putting that in simpler English, it basically is anything that bothers you, anything that troubles you if it bothers you, you know, mentally or physically, it's pain. So what does that mean? That means anxiety is pain. That means depression is pain. These are all forms of pain. Um, obviously a broken bone is pain. Things like CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, PTSD, these are all painful conditions. Uh, inflammatory conditions are painful. Neuropathic conditions are p- painful. So really anything that bothers you is painful. And when we start looking at things through that lens, we can start really getting a grasp of what's going on neurophysiologically when we talk about pain. Central sensitization specifically refers to increased responsiveness of nociceptive neurons to the normal input and or recruitment of a response to normally sub-threshold inputs. So putting that in English, it means that the central nervous system is a little pissed off. So you do things that are maybe not so painful and the brain is interpreting them as painful. Uh, Peripheral sensitization is effectively the same thing. It's an increased responsiveness or reduced threshold of a nociceptive neuron in the periphery to stimulation of their receptive fields. So what that means is peripherally, those nerves, those neurons are are a little more sensitive than they should be, and you are feeling something, again, uh, more intensely than typically you should feel. There's some other definitions I want to go over real quickly. Uh, Again, just so we're all on the same page, many of these definitions you probably know, but I'm sure there's a few people in the audience that may want some clarification on some of these terms that sometimes seem like they overlap. Um, So I'll quickly go through this. uh, If you have any questions about this afterwards, I'm more than happy to, to talk to you afterwards. Allodynia. Allodynia is pain due to stimulus that doesn't normally cause pain. So, for example, blowing air on your skin. Dysesthesia, an unpleasant abnormal sensation, whether it's spontaneous or evoked. Hyperalgesia is increased pain from a stimulus that normally provokes pain. So for example, someone pinches you, but it feels like someone has ripped off a piece of your skin. Hyperesthesia is increased sensitivity to stimulation, uh, excluding the special senses. Hyperpathia, a painful syndrome characterized by abnormally painful reaction to a stimulus, especially a repetitive stimulus, as well as an increased threshold. Neuralgia is pain in the distribution of a nerve or nerves. Uh, Neuritis is actual inflammation of those nerves or nerves. Neuropathic pain is pain that's caused by a lesion or a disease of the somatosensory nervous system. Central neuropathic pain is pain caused by a lesion or disease in the central nervous system, and then peripheral neuropathic pain, obviously same concept in the peripheral nervous system. Neuropathy is a disturbance of function or pathological changes in a nerve. It's either one nerve or multiple nerves. And it can be diffuse, it can be bilateral, it can be throughout the body or in one specific area of the body. Nociceptive pain is pain that arises from actual or threatened damage to non-neural tissue due to activation of Um Some people believe that that term uh, is, is, is not really a term because at the end of the day you could have damage to an organ. So for example, you can break a bone. But at the end of the day, the nerves transmit that pain. So are the nerves maybe more hypersensitized or are they more inflamed? We won't get into that debate, uh, but just know that the definition of nociceptive pain is effectively pain from, from tissue damage that's non-neural in origin. Sensitization is increased responsiveness of nociceptive neurons to their normal input. Um, obviously, then you can subcategorize that into central and peripheral sensitization. So looking at all these definitions, we have an understanding, okay, there's, uh, there's, there's different ways to describe pain. So it's more than just I hurt. We can subdivide all, that, uh, all those complaints into multiple different terms, um, uh, which we just described, but we'll also subdivide those terms into even more categories in just a minute. Uh, so that way you can understand how to categorize it, put a little outline in your brain in terms of where that different uh, pain condition falls because once you can do that, then, then it really just becomes a very outlined uh, diagram in terms of how you should approach that from a diagnosis and a treatment standpoint. One of the most common causes of pain is lower back pain. Um, lower back pain can be central. Lower back pain can be peripheral. Lower back pain can be from actual tissue damage, and sometimes it's not from actual tissue damage. Um, and, and one of the problems is that because you have all of these different factors that can play a role in lower back pain, it is um, something that still isn't, you know, not always treated fully, uh, which is why we, we are here, I guess, right? Uh, how do we treat patients better? When we look at just lower back pain, at the end of the day, you know, we can all say, hey, we, we see patients with pain, but the reality is the vast majority of those patients with pain are gonna have lower back pain. And so lower back pain can account for half of all the musculoskeletal diagnoses. Um, at some point in life, 85% of us are, g- are going to have lower back pain that really does impact us. So more than just, I pulled a muscle, I'm hurting for an hour. We're talking about it's going to impact us for days or weeks. Okay, so 85%. My personal feeling on that is 15% of the people are lying. I think we're, we all will have lower back pain because th- this is what happens when we started to stand on two feet instead of four feet. Um, I wouldn't encourage for legged walking, by the way, so probably wouldn't work out too well. But lower back pain is also commonly uh, uh, noted in younger patients. So in patients under the age of 45, lower back pain is the leading cause of disability. So it does mean a lot. You know, when we throw out these statistics, about $635 billion a year goes toward um, the treatment of pain, not just the treatment of pain, but also lost revenue, lost um, uh, productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And when we talk about these numbers, you know, over 100 million people with chronic pain, a lot of those patients have lower back pain. They have arthritis, too, so a lot of lower back arthritis. About 20 million people have osteoarthritis in the lower back, um, and that's just osteoarthritis. It doesn't include things like stenosis or discogenic pain or radicular pain. So uh, I spend a little time talking about lower back pain because, again, um, it is a major problem. But we use lower back pain as just one, uh, you know, major type of example of um, a condition that really incorporates all of the, you know, all of these terms and definitions that we had before. Um, in, in every single term and definition, we have components of that in, in different types of lower back pain. Uh, so lower back pain isn't all about just, you know, an MRI. And if MRI is normal, everything's normal. It, it's way beyond that. So when we see a patient, let's just say lower back pain, for example, how do we categorize that? How do we subcategorize that? Well, what you do is, uh, what you should do initially is then decide what kind of pain or what what categories of pain does this patient fall under. Uh, The four categories of pain include nociceptive pain, um, neuropathic pain, inflammatory pain, and central pain, or central pain amplification or central sensitization. Now your patient could have all four of these, they could have one of these, but it's important to, to subdivide that patient's pain into these four categories, because the treatment modalities may be different, depending on the categories. So uh, uh, within these categories, um, you have to also then decide if it's an acute process, if it's a chronic process, or if it's a palliative process. The acute processes uh, are obviously the acute. Uh, situations the short-term dis- situations, things that are typically three months or less so those could be uh, some type of recent injury or a surgery or post-op you know obstetrical issue etc however all of those can turn into chronic issues if if by definition it lasts for more than three months it's now a chronic issue and your treatment for chronic issues is far different than the treatment for acute issues um, because at that point it's sometimes safe to assume that the injury itself has resolved. You're now left with a lot of other stuff, and and all that other stuff really are, are those definitions that we went over in the very beginning of the lecture. Um, palliative is really the serious pain that you know from people who are suffering or dying from uh, from significant diseases. Palliative doesn't necessarily mean hospice. Okay, sometimes people think palliative and hospice not the same thing. But the palliative care of someone versus the chronic pain care can vary in terms of of approach. So you define these things under three categories, acute, chronic, and palliative. Um, It also does help dictate what your uh, next steps will be in treating those patients. So who provides these services? Um, Who provides services... For pain management, you know, I've given this slide many times in all of my lectures just to sort of say the inclusiveness of all of us in the sense that we all treat patients who have pain. What, what, I, what did we say at the beginning? Pain is anything that bothers you. Someone comes in for a cough or a cold or you know chest congestion, th- theoretically that's pain, right? So we all treat patients who have pain. Anesthesiology, emergency med, general surgery, surgery of all kind really, um, orthopedics, neurosurgery, physiatry, um, psychiatry, even radiology. And you say, well, radiology. Well, yeah, you know, there's interventional radiology, but also radiologists help. Without radiologists, we wouldn't be able to, to, to really do our jobs because we wouldn't have the correct readings. So we all play a role in pain management. Um, and it's not just limited to physicians. It's absolutely not limited to physicians. Chiropractors play a big role. CRNAs, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, physician assistants, massage therapists. Um, if there are any massage therapists here, by the way. Um, yeah? Yeah? I'll take a massage after this. Uh, uh, acupuncturists, uh, same thing, if there are any acupuncturists here. Um, holistic doctors, right? Integrative medicine, uh, holistic medicine, um, you know, naturopaths, uh, DME providers, and again, even hospice and home health providers, they all play a role in pain management. Here's the problem though, okay? So here's the problem. Um, you know, we all play a role, but we all unfortunately have our, our blinders on because that's the way we've been trained um for better or worse you know traditional training is i mean my gosh even in medical school i mean i distinctly remember uh, first semester biochemistry i had a debate with the uh, i don't know what was it genetics or whatever it was and um, and uh, they said how many turns are in a double helix and the answers weren't completely right and so i put none of the above and he said well i rounded up and i said well i didn't (laughs) and he said well you're getting it wrong and i said but i'm right and um, and uh, it didn't matter I had to be brainwashed into thinking whatever crap he wanted me to think, and that's the way it's going to be if I wanted to pass. And, and that seems to still be the case. You go do a residency, right? Whatever your attending says, you have to be brainwashed into thinking that way. And if you think outside of the box, you're chastised. Um, and so, but, but within that, we lo- we, this is what happens, right? So the psychiatrist sees depression. You know, someone comes in, they say, I'm hurting. Psychiatrist says, Oh, you're depressed. How many times have we had that, right? You're, you're depressed. And this is not a knock on anyone uh, specifically. Uh, psychiatrist says that you know you're depressed. Otolaryngologist, you, you have TMJ. That's why it hurts here. Um, the neurologist will say, well, you've got headaches. You've got chronic headaches, right? Um, the rheumatologist will see, you know, fibromyalgia. Cardiologist will say it's non-cardiac chest pain. Gynecologist will say PMS. Um, gastroenterologist will say IBS. Uh, it, actually, I have a story about that. Um, uh, we have a patient right now. Uh, we'll get her videos up soon on our on our YouTube page. Uh, for seven years. Seven years, the gastroenterologist misdiagnosed her as IBS. They put four, they had forty-two surgeries on her, all involving different peg tubes and feeding tubes and all this crap. Uh, hadn't had a full meal in seven years, and so this girl's what twenty years old, I believe, twenty-one years old. Um, I mean, they ruined her life, and they give her a stupid diagnosis of IBS, all because she came in at the age of thirteen and said, um, you know, my, st- uh, I, you know, when I eat whatever, my stomach starts to hurt. That's it. That's it. Every single test was negative. Every single scope was negative. Every single biopsy has been negative. And they give her this diagnosis because that's what they've been trained to do. They didn't give her a diagnosis of what it turns out that she has, um, she, she has a history of CRPS. Uh, CRPS can spread. And, and in her case, it spread to the GI system. So when she would eat, her GI system would get inflamed not because of any specific item, but because simply the, the physical act of putting something in there, that, that physical act of being distended was painful to her. But they, didn't, they missed that because they were never trained to, to, to see things that way. Um, long story short, she came to us just this year. Within two months of starting ketamine infusions, uh, we had every single tube out of her body. Um, now we're about three months out. She's eating pizza. She's eating meals, all that stuff. Um, we haven't completely resolved her. She's, she's better, but she, you know, we need to keep following up with her um but hey you know what for someone who's been suffering for seven years to turn her life around in two months i think is amazing um, and what has she had crps you know which is a form of central sensitization which we'll get into in a little bit um, so that's the that's the issue that we we have it's it's a it's a medical system problem you know it's not an individual problem per se it's a medical system problem um, and we have that problem within pain management as well so you know it's not like we could just say, oh, well, refer to this one pain management doc and and, and everything will be okay. Now, typically, pain management has been board-certified anesthesiologists, fellowship-trained anesthesiologists, um, and, and they've been trained to do a variety of procedures, but also that can also lead to this 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 visor-like uh, behavior where every everyone tends to be a pincushion then. Um, at the very end of this presentation, I'm going to give you a quote that a anesthesiologist who has done a, a fellowship in pain management um, it was an unaccredited fellowship but it was a fellowship um, and he is the head of a major hospital in Chicago he's the head of the anesthesia department and the head of their fellowship program and the residency program uh, and, and I'm gonna give you I'm gonna show you what the comment he made about pain management and it's gonna sicken you but it's gonna be a great I, I include it in all my presentations about about central pain or ketamine infusions because it's a reflection on our medical system and how Flawed it is and, and why you know we even have these lectures here on on um, on educational items because we're not taught this so anyway pain specialists you know typically is is going to be what you see here right um, but the reality is is even those physicians and other physicians um, may not have had accredited fellowships or may have had unaccredited board certification so you never know some of the ones who've done accreditation um, might not be ethical there's a there was a group in alabama uh, that was arrested for, for doing some very naughty things. They were anesthesiologists, interventional pain physicians, and I think they're all serving 40 years in jail now uh, for doing um, you know, what, I, what I call counterfeit medicine, which we'll talk about on, on Thursday if you're around. Uh, so the so point of all this is, and you're probably wondering, what does it have to do with ketamine infusions? What does it have to do with you know, um, uh, back pain or whatever? The point of this is, is there, there, aren't, there isn't a specific field that does ketamine infusions there isn't a specific type of physician that necessarily does it well or doesn't do it well. Um, a lot, and, and that's been the confusion within the system. We, we've seen some problems with people who you think are supposed to do it well. And then some people who, who you think wouldn't really have the training are actually doing a phenomenal job. Um, so that's the background of pain management, the landscape of pain management that we have now, and, um, and uh, the landscape of, of so ketamine infusions in terms of who's doing them. It's a little bit of everyone right now. So what is central sensitization? We had mentioned this in the very beginning of the, of the presentation, but it's this, it's this response to, of the central nervous system to a stimulus that's hyperactive, hypersensitive. Uh, some have called it the wind-up phenomenon, where you know neurons are just wound up and, and they're just spinning out of control. And they're in the state of high reactivity and they just can't stop. Um, so when, when patients have central sensitization, it's incredibly important when you see those patients, and really any patient, that you categorize those patients into whether you feel like it's a central or a peripheral sensitization, and if you feel like how much of this pain is organic versus inorganic. Now, that last one, and really both of them, actually, central versus peripheral, organic versus inorganic, is going to be an absolute guess when you see those patients because there's really no way for you to know how much of it is central and peripheral by just looking at them. And there's no way to know how much of this is organic or inorganic uh, by just looking at them. Because for example, uh, like depression, anxiety, those are considered inorganic diseases. Um, fibromyalgia is actually an inorganic disease. Uh, broken bone, a disc bulge is an organic disease. But when someone comes to you and they say, "I'm really hurting," you know, my, 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 trape- my trapezius is really hurting, at that point, how, do you know, how do you know? How do you know if this is a referred process? How do you know if this is a central process? You don't know but um, history, physical, you can kind of get some ideas and start forming some opinions. Central sensitization is not a new concept. It's not a concept I invented at all. This is a concept that's been around for hundreds of years. Just in Western medicine, Descartes back in 1644 described central sensitization in his own terms. And he had described it with his own diagrams and images. He had described this, this um little boy here who had stubbed his toe against um, some wood and I I guess that's fire um, and and it must have hurt and he had described this this uh, linear relationship between the foot and the brain knowing that something's going on up here that's that, that not only are we sensing it but also we're sensing things that are far more than we should you know you stub a toe against the wall and there's no damage but boy that hurts and he had described it back then and still to this day and again, you'll see with my last slide, still to this day, we're trying to convince physicians, MDs, that the brain plays a role in pain, which is still mind-boggling to me. Um, but after this, hopefully, you will see that there's actual evidence that the brain does play a role in life and in the, with the brain. <laughs> we need a functional MRI images, right, to, to prove that. And we've had some of those. Here's, some, here's a few right here at the top right of this diagram. You can see it's cortical reorganization um, through functional MRI imaging. Uh, when patients were stimulated with pain. Now, we've had these cortical images um, through a variety of different um, uh, painful stimuli. We'll, we'll show some of those in just a minute. So what is it? Central sensation, what is it actually? So scientifically, we talked about sort of the English definition. Uh, scientifically, we're seeing this, this hypersensitivity, this manifestation of activated, activity-dependent plasticity, neuroplasticity in the brain, And we found that a bulk of it is mediated by the NMDA receptor. So it it, it operates after some type of noxious stimuli, uh, triggers it. It operates after some type of peripheral injury um, or injury in the spinal cord or the brain. So basically, um, obviously, that describes your whole body. It can be an injury of any type throughout your whole body that can lead to this central hypersensitization. If it involves multiple presynaptic and postsynaptic uh, changes, and uh, they can affect the way that neurotransmitters are both released as well as uh, broken down. Many of the features of central sensitization represent uh, the same features we see with memories. So when you form a memory, you're doing a lot more than just remembering an event. You're forming a, an experience and an emotional Attachment to that experience and what are emotions emotions are all of the uh, the pain neurotransmitters the the pain uh, uh, Receptors effectively in the brain that are that are forming that memory So that's why when you remember a memory you have maybe some good or some happy or some dopaminergically releasing Memories uh, or feelings about that memory and you have some that can cause uh, some really, you know, make you nauseous some memories can make you nauseous Um, so the same forms the same uh, effectiveness is happening, the same process is happening with memories as well as central sensitization. And again, fun- functional MRIs have shown us this. Central sensitization is produced uh, by increase in excitability and reduction in inhibitory neurotransmitters. So it's not only wound up, right? The accelerator is not only being pressed, but the brakes are gone. Someone drained the brake fluid, um, and and you can't stop. So it's been suggested that central neural, neural uh, sensitization plays an important role in post-operative pain, and we'll show you some data on that later. But it's, it's possible that a lot of the chronic pain that patients have after a surgery may be because of that whole post-op experience and, and lack thereof in terms of a good experience. So what causes central sensitization? Well, we know NMDA receptor activation causes it. We also know that altered gene expression in the dorsal horn um, can cause central sensitization. And, and, and that's interesting because that may also imply that some people may be predisposed to central pain as opposed to others. And I'm positive that every one of you has seen something like that. You'll say, you know, my mom had fibro and I had fibro or whatever, right? Or, or whatever other condition you want to substitute with. And you'll say, wow, you know, that, that family really has some bad luck. Some of it may be experiential, but some of it may be genetic. Uh, Decreased inhibition, as we talked about, microglial activation, and uh, that's going to be important in just a minute um, at the, toward the end of the uh, discussion. And thalamic and somatosensory cortex changes. So here are some types of central sensitization. Uh, some of these terms we, we mentioned in the very beginning of this presentation. Things like anxiety, depression, uh, just chronic pain in general. Okay? The, the mere fact that you're living in chronic pain is a very, very bad memory, and that bad memory can get hardwired in the brain, thus producing this, again, wind-up. You know, so the pain causes uh, the memory. The memory then increases the pain and then it just keeps going. CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, or RSD, depression, fibromyalgia, chronic headaches, um, not all, but some types of chronic headaches can be central, um, or central sensitization. I guess, theoretically, they're all central in the sense they're all in the brain, but um, central sensitization specifically. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Opioids can cause hyperalgesia. That means opioids can make your pain feel worse um, uh, without without getting too off track in terms of the mechanism of that. Um, It's something that that you all need to know. Phantom limb pain and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So some of the neurophysiology of central sensitization looks like this. Uh, We had talked about how it's excitatory as well as a lack of inhibitory. So here's what happens. If you look at A, you see this nociceptive transmission. Right? There's some type of signal. You know, that's, uh, that little V at the very bottom um, is, is uh, an inhibitory um, interneuron. So you see that uh, you know, pain is being transmitted. There's some type of sensation that's being transmitted. And, and, and uh, letter B, you see central sensitization in the acute phase. So you're seeing, if you, can, if you see that, you see a, l- a lot more activity in terms of neurotransmitter activity. But you're also seeing that that inhibitory interneuron is not working. In central sensitization in the late phase, uh, you start truly seeing changes, you know, fundamental changes, and we call, again we call it neuroplasticity um, in the brain, in the spinal cord, and and you can see that that inhibitory neurotransmitter is still sleeping. Um, and then finally, disinhibition. So um, you know, there's just now it's completely disconnected. Um, the circuit is kind of fried and set in place and uh, and it's going to stay that way it's going to stay that way until somehow we can reset that whole uh, that whole circuit here's some of those functional mri uh, 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 images that i was telling you about these are just a few Um, and again you you could spend a whole hour just just dissecting those images but um, i do want you to just take home uh, sort of look at these pictures and just get an idea that. You know with functional mris we're able to really look inside the brain at brain activity and with that we're all, almost able to fingerprint the brain and fingerprint the disease certain diseases you'll see certain areas of the brain light up and other diseases you'll see other areas of the brain light up so what we've what we've seen with some of these studies is patients who have a bonafide disease you'll have a functional MRI. And then patients who are, you know, quote, normal, right? Uh, pain-free, disease-free, you'll have another set of functional MRIs. And you start seeing that there are very similar changes that occur in the patient populations with a certain disease process. Um, you can see that even more with this. This kind of breaks down that last slide. So functional MRI with lower back pain, you start seeing patients who you know, have this kind of a pattern. Osteoarthritis looks very different. So what happens when you have lower back pain in general, or say a soft tissue lower back pain, and you have osteoarthritis, you'd probably see some overlapping, right? You'd see this area light up and probably this area light up. Uh, post-herpetic neuralgia, as you can see, looks very different. Pelvic pain looks, looks even more different. I mean, a totally different part of the brain. I mean, look at this, osteoarthritis is way down here and pelvic pain, right, it's at the top of the brain. So again, these are kind of like fingerprints, um, and and uh, you you can kind of take this to the bank now. Why don't why doesn't everyone get a functional MRI? Well, I think you all know the answer. Those are logistically impossible. they functional MRIs are not available everywhere. They're uh, incredibly expensive. Uh, the last time I heard, they were I don't know three or five thousand dollars, and no insurance companies really approving them. Um, so so th- that's why. But but if we were able to have those, you'd hopefully be able to fingerprint things a little better. We've looked at functional MRI in CRPS, and we've sort of called CRPS the model of central sensitization, because CRPS um, is considered to be one of the most painful diseases uh, known to mankind. Um, now, there are obviously various spectrums on the CRPS pain spectrum, um, but I- in its intensity, it's, it's a very severe disease. Every, by the way, is everyone familiar with CRPS? Okay, pretty much everyone. Uh, if you, I'll let you, okay, I'll, we'll describe it in just in case. Uh, CRPS is, uh you know, complex regional pain syndrome is, is a central condition where, um, for whatever reason, uh, your brain has decided that um, it doesn't like your body anymore. <laughs> it basically, it, it has decided that um, it's going to turn a normal s- stimuli into an abnormal stimuli. It has decided that it's, it doesn't care if your injury doesn't exist anymore. And um, so the brain doesn't get that signal that the injury... Is gone it still thinks the injury persists and so it enters this feedback loop where it it starts now restricting blood flow it starts restricting you know temperature to that extremity it it thinks that you know you're bleeding to death or whatever it starts protecting it but in the act of protecting it it's actually injuring it more and then you start seeing bone demineralization and you start seeing uh, skin loss you start seeing the uh, or hair loss you start seeing the skin getting scaly and and not being as healthy Um, ultimately what the patient feels is they feel like they have a volcano going off in their body. They feel like they're burning up inside. They feel like sometimes they can't even put on clothing because it hurts so much. So we use that as a prototypical model because it is one of the worst painful diseases that that you could ever have. And if you look at this functional MRI image here, you can see on the left, you see a healthy patient. On the right, you see a CRPS patient. Now what would you notice? I mean, you notice on the left, um, you know, a lot of activity sort of on the left side of this image almost none on the left side of this image in the CRPS patient, and and vice versa. On the right side, you see some activity, but on the CRPS patient, you see a lot of activity. Um, Ultimately, what does that that mean for the purposes of this discussion is, hey, we've been able to really objectively say that the brain, in fact, plays a role in life, in pain. It was amazing to me that we've had to do that, but we do have to do that. Uh, So we have that data. So anyone who says the brain doesn't play a role in pain is something else. Um, we've also seen that brain do, the brain does reorganize. Okay? Neuroplasticity does occur. And again, we know this. We call it something called experiences, right? We all know that you're not the same person you were when you were two years old, or 10 years old, or 18 years old. Except for when you come to Vegas, you might be an 18 year old again. But separate issue. Um, we know that the brain reorganizes. We know that you change over time in response to your whole life experiences. But here's the thing, it's more than just your behavior. Your brain fundamentally reorganizes. So when you're looking at pain, the brain reorganizes at an accelerated rate because it's trying to protect itself. Um, The reality is it's not actually protecting itself because in many situations the injury isn't even there anymore. You're not bleeding to death even though the brain may think you are. And so you see these rapid changes um, with the brain, this being sort of a normal gray matter Um, global change and and this being an abnormal representation with a lot of gray matter changes over time so pain does affect the brain pain is a disease in and of itself especially central pain is a disease in and of itself I mean you could even argue in a way I mean look at look at the damage doing the tissues it's like it's like it's almost like a cancer right it's damaging these tissues as time goes on and if it's unchecked it's going to continue damaging it until the point of, of no return. And, and what happens in the point of re- no return, people do die. It's called suicide, right? And we have how many tens of thousands a year because of these kind of changes. So this can be a very deadly condition if it's not treated appropriately. Um, so m- back in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, uh, we had the first description of the mechanism of action of CRPS as well as the mechanism of action of PTSD and the mechanism of action of hot flashes. And we were able to, to prove or objectively show that something called a stellate ganglion, which is um, uh, a uh, um, sympathetic ganglion in the neck, by, by stopping that ganglion, what would happen uh, with these diseases. And, and we saw a complete resolution of these diseases. Um, some other imaging was done in other studies to show that when you're actually blocking the stellate ganglion, a lot of people think when you block the stellate ganglion, you're, you're imparting a peripheral effect, and that's absolutely not the case. You're imparting a central effect, and by reversing the central disease, you see manifestations then peripherally. Um, people think you're doing it in the neck, so you must be doing something for the arm, and that's, that's not true. So what you're doing is you're actually changing the, uh, the central sensitivity and the central sensitization in various parts of the brain, including the amygdala, the insular cortex, and the hypothalamus. And that's how you're able to see these, these rapid and sudden changes. When you're saying rapid, you're saying within five minutes, the disease is gone in some cases. Um, it's not because you're numbing up the brain. You're numbing up the, the, the feedback loop. You're stopping it, right? You're putting the brakes on. Um, so, so this was actually, for me, um, a very a very important article. We got published pretty uh, widely. And, uh, but, it, but it helped reinforce that the brain is definitely playing a, a huge role in, a, in, in various conditions, even conditions that we wouldn't even think of, right? Like hot flashes. You know, at the time, people were, were saying, well, hot flashes, what the hell are you, a pain doctor treating hot flashes? Well, hot flashes can be very painful. And, and our study was published uh, in Lancet Oncology on the cover because it theoretically, it was a theoretical way to save 50% of breast cancer patients because 50% of breast cancer patients stop tamoxifen and life-saving drugs because of hot flashes. So those people are directly putting themselves at risk because of hot flashes. So by reversing it, you could theoretically allow those patients to, to be in remission uh, indefinitely. Um, so all of these things are painful conditions, and that's I, I hope you, you sort of want to take home message here is pain is a lot more than just you know arthritis, right? Uh, so treatments of central sensitization and CRPS, a lot of treatments exist. There's therapy-based treatments, which include physical therapy, um, mirror box therapy, graded motor imagery, tactile discrimination training and sensory discrimination training um, there are neuro uh, psych feedback uh, therapies so eeg biofeedback cognitive behavioral therapy uh, relaxation techniques and hypnosis by the way all of these are great options in and of themselves and they can all be used in conjunction with each other medications are, are uh, uh, used as well there's there, there are a wide variety alpha or beta blockers anti-inflammatories bisphosphonates uh, botulism, toxin, uh, calcium-regulating drugs, GABA analogs, ketamine, local anesthetics, opioids, SNRIs, and vasodilators. Interventional options can include epidural blockade of that extremity or uh, that whole entire trunk or limbs or, you know, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You could put catheters in that selectively block certain nerve roots or block certain parts of the body. Uh, intravenous immunoglobulin, intravenous regional sympathetic blockade, Uh, Ketamine infusions, selective synthetic ganglion nerve blocks, and spinal cord stimulators. So here's a history on ketamine. Ketamine's been around for a long time. It's been around for about 50 years. um, And it was synthesized by a gentleman named Calvin Stevens at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, It was first introduced to testing in humans in 1964. The FDA approved it for use in 1970. Ketamine is also considered a core medicine uh, by the World Health Organization. So what does that mean? That means that they feel that ketamine is one of the basic drugs that you need to have some type of healthcare system. And they feel it's that important uh, to have. And and the reasons are are very wide, and we'll we'll get into that in, in just a second. Properties of ketamine. It's a highly lipophilic molecule. It has a racemic mixture. That means it has an S and an R um, isomer, and that's important because both of them have different properties from an efficacy standpoint as well as a side effect standpoint. The onset is very rapid. The IV onset is about thirty seconds. The IM onset is about three to four minutes. The duration IV can be anywhere from between five to fifteen minutes, and IM about twelve to twenty-five minutes. Half life is relatively short, about two and a half hours. And distribution half-life is about 11 to 16 hours. Uh, that's kind of important because when we talk about ketamine infusions, you know, you're talking about an infusion of a medication along with other medications. It's in, it's out. Basically, most of that drug will be out by the next day. So patients who have relief for weeks or months or whatever, it's not the ketamine that's just lingering around in their system. The ketamine has gone in, put on the brakes, and then left. Uh, metabolism, hepatic uh, metabolism uh and excretion uh primarily via the urine so looking at the nmda receptor because that's really sort of the grand central station here that's the receptor that has really been implicated in in central sensitization and it's the receptor that ketamine binds to Um, so it's a very important receptor and what we're trying to do is antagonize that receptor we're trying to put the brakes on by binding to that receptor Uh, the nmda receptor is present in uh, you know really throughout the body but it's definitely present in the central nervous system and the dorsal horn uh, of the spinal cord. It is highly permeable. Uh, it binds um, um, other compounds such as magnesium. So magnesium has been used for a variety of things, uh, but magnesium has been used for uh, central pain as well. And the mechanism of that um, is via this NMDA receptor mechanism. Uh, NMDA receptor signaling is important in anesthesia. It's been involved in pain processing as well as neural plasticity and the generation of central sensitization so another reason why um, it is very important for people to, to recognize this perioperatively um, I've, I've you know in my many years spoken to many surgeons and anesthesiologists about this concept and some of them truly think I'm off my rocker they just really truly don't think that this exists uh, so I hope you guys do at the end of this presentation the NMDA receptor is very important in controlling synaptic plasticity as well as memory function um, including just memories in general so there's a medication nemantadine uh, or nemenda uh, on the market it is a true nmda receptor and it's actually approved for memory loss alzheimer's disease so uh, sometimes you you know that those memory losses that disease can exist because of an nmda receptor problem altering their ability to form memories so that's why that medication is on the market here's what uh, it's sort of a diagram a sample of the nmda receptor um it's obviously far more complicated than this and this is the other issue with NMDA it is again the Grand Central Station as you can see I mean there are trains leaving in every which direction going in in different directions and and not all those trains fit on every single track uh so you know you have say an NMDA receptor sub uh, sub receptor where ketamine may bind which is very different than a med- medication like methadone or levorphanol, which also can bind to NMDA receptors, won't give you anywhere near the same results as ketamine. It's a totally different result. Same thing with magnesium. Uh, we're not gonna get the same results of ketamine. Um, same thing as um, you know. there's some illicit medications also that can uh, dissociative anesthetics that can bind to receptors. Uh, will give you a totally different result compared to ketamine um, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's because of the sub receptors that we find on the NMDA. Uh, receptor. So there are a bunch of subreceptors. Again, I don't want to get into all of those details. Just uh, I have some of them listed here, um, just to sort of let you know that there there really are a bunch of subreceptors. Um, we had talked about gene activation, and so some of those genes that have been uh, activated are some of these here. Um, some of the most famous ones are CFOS and JunB and uh, and c-Jun. Those are some of the most famous ones. You may remember those from from your schooling. Um, I remember studying those um, in medical school and you know, thought it was completely useless because <laughs> it made no sense, right? Uh, but now we're, you're starting to link all these things together and you start realizing, oh my gosh, well this gene activation may actually play a role in some of these chronic pain diseases. So it's, it's really kind of interesting how that's been full circle, at least for me. Uh, ketamine alters the regulation of NMDA receptors by uh, phosphorylation, phosphorylation. And we've seen uh, mRNA changes in rat models. So, again, um, not only are you uh, binding to the receptor, but you're seeing this gene activation may even cause mRNA to start being expressed that wasn't maybe expressed before. And finally, uh, it may limit um, astrocytic and microglial activation. and uh, that, That's... Uh, uh, a, a, a proposed mechanism for central inflammation, central nervous system inflammation. So we talked about that at the very beginning, we're going to talk about inflammation. So, central nervous system inflammation may potentially respond to something like ketamine because of its limitation to microglial activation. <clears throat> yeah, here's some references. Okay. Um, some other mechanisms of action. So, it's, it's more than just the NMDA receptor. Uh, we've seen um, activation of uh, various cation occurrence we've seen, um, uh, and then this is a big one. You'll probably hear more about this um, uh, over the next few years. Uh, delta and mu opioid agonism and opioid potentiation. So that's been known for a while. Um, there's, uh, so there's a new study that came out um, from Stanford where they uh, used naltrexone and ketamine, and and uh, and they found that the ketamine didn't help. Um, which is interesting because in many cases we've used naltrexone and ketamine as a synergistic option. Um, I I don't want to get into the details of that study, but suffice to say, there were actually some flaws in their their methodology, uh, and uh, and, and it's unfortunate because they're kind of veering down the wrong path there in terms of understanding the mechanism of action. Um, You do see mu receptor sensitization, which is important, which is why things like opioid-induced hyperalgesia uh, can potentially respond to ketamine infusions. Uh, which is why you could even lower the dose of medications that patients are on with ketamine infusions because if you're resensitizing those receptors, you no longer need, whatever, 100 milligrams. Now you may only need 50 milligrams because you've resensitized those receptors. Um, It is not a direct mu agonist, okay? So it is not an opioid, and and that's, I think, the the big take-home here uh, because, again, that study kind of implied that it was a mu agonist. It's not a mu agonist directly. it's It's an NMDA receptor antagonist, but its effects may cause mute agonism, if that makes sense. Um, nitric oxide uh, uh, may get stimulated through a CGMP system. As, as you may know, there's a new medication for headaches that works on CGMP. Uh, that, it, it, interestingly enough, we've seen ketamine infusions reverse those intractable migraine headaches, and it could be a similar system um, here as well with, with um, you know, affecting the CGMP system along with affecting the NMDA receptor Those two combine together as well as who knows what else. uh, And we're actually seeing a breakage of that that intractable migraine headache uh, condition. Um, Glutamate receptors get remodulated. When the NMDA receptor is hyperactivated, you see excitatory neurotransmitters, such as glutamate and glycine, being expressed in levels that they shouldn't be expressed at. So this will obviously uh, affect that system and remodulate that system and hopefully allow those receptors to be expressed in a more normal format. Uh, brain-derived neuro- neurotrophic factor um, and mTOR may also be uh, influenced uh, with ketamine. Um, increased release of aminergic neurotransmitters such as dopamine and noradrenaline may actually be influenced uh, with ketamine. Um, references. Uh, we've also seen the active metabolite of ketamine, which is norketamine, that has been shown to actually have anti-analgesic effects. Um, and, uh, and, and ketamine may actually facilitate endogenous pain pathways in some circumstances. So what that really is implying is that, again, uh, we may see sort of this return of the, of the patient's normal um, ability to, to tolerate or fight pain with, uh, with ketamine. So in the, in the um, setting of, of chronic neuropathic pain, there's some evidence that uh, this prolonged post-drug analgesia that markedly outlasts the effective drug's duration may be related to these mechanisms, these downstream mechanisms. You know, you put the brakes on, but while putting the brakes on, you also, you know, is that domino effect uh, that we see, kind of, again, resetting that whole circuit, stopping that wind-up phenomenon. And finally, uh, there's actually evidence to show ketamine's analgesia is not reduced by naloxone, which would, again, primarily argue against, the, uh, against a primary opioid mechanism downstream. So, the study that they did at Stanford was naltrexone, not naloxone, and, um, and, and the mechanism that they had described was, was, uh, was a little flawed. Uh, so, if you do see that study, just keep that in mind. All right, so here's kind of a little sort of uh, summary of, of ketamine and its mechanism of action um, fire alarm. <laughs> uh, I think that means that I'm supposed to be done. I'm not. (laughs) Um, But I did ask before I started if there's another presentation here afterwards, and they said no. So um, if you do have to leave, I totally understand. But um, I won't be too much longer. I think less than five minutes or so. So ketamine's mechanism of action is very complicated. Okay, So the big one is this NMDA receptor, down regulation of the NMDA receptor. But it's far more than just that. Um, and, and, And it's this complex mechanism that really that really makes ketamine one of these very unique molecules that we just happen to have at our arsenal there are some other uh, companies that are developing sort of the next generation of ketamine Um, it'll be interesting to see what those molecules look like because again there's something special about this molecule will those other molecules have these effects or other effects we don't know we don't know Uh, some of the preliminary data at least is showing that they're working really well for depression so, so, so we do know depression is mediated by NMDA receptors. Um, and, uh, and so I'm sure these new molecules will affect the NMDA receptors, but what else will they do? We don't know. Uh, at least I don't know. It's not public yet. So effective, uh, the effects of ketamine. So here's some of the um, – uh, this is one of the reasons why the World Health Organization has listed as one of the core medications. You know, when you're doing anesthesia, right, all of the anesthetics, all of the anesthetics, you know, dep- depress the central nervous system, and they also depress cardiac function, respiratory function. So that's a problem when you don't want to depress it. It's definitely a problem in the battlefield or in a traumatic situation. Ketamine does the opposite. Ketamine actually increases cardiovascular output, it increases blood pressure, it increases heart rate. It actually stimulates uh, the uh, beta-2 uh, adrenergic receptors, so it, it relaxes smooth muscles, so it doesn't constrict, them, it actually relaxes them. Um, It can increase uh, salivary secretions, especially in kids. Um, We have found, at least with our infusions in adults, we have not found that to be the case at all. In fact, and and it's very surprising, it goes against every piece of literature that's out there, but we've done thousands of these. Um, I'll put my thousands against any book out there. We have patients who say they have a dry mouth with the infusions, not because ketamine's causing that dry mouth, but because ketamine is most likely not causing the salivary secretions that we're seeing at the therapeutic infusion doses. If you're, if you're bolusing them with like some massive amount, then yeah, they're gonna drool all over the place. But if you're doing an infusion properly, we're not seeing any of those things happen. In fact, we're seeing dry mouth because they haven't had anything to eat or drink for a long time, and we're not seeing an increased salivary output. Um, it does not lead to ventilatory, ventilatory depression. one of the huge huge benefits of ketamine as opposed to almost any other anesthetic out there so we're just using ketamine in the or um, and we don't you know we haven't used a paralytic we haven't intubated uh it can be very useful in the sense of this this ventillary depression protection that said at those levels of general anesthetic dosing you may see those secretions come so it's a little bit of it's a balancing act neurologically you don't see the central nervous system being depressed from a blood flow standpoint, you actually see increases in cerebral blood flow. Um, there's, there, there used to be some uh, data out there that said that it increased seizures. Uh, we have not seen that, and some recent data suggests that maybe it doesn't increase seizures like we once thought it did. Uh, and finally, uh, sensory and peripheral, um, uh, uh, you know, vivid dreams, right, hallucinations. It, it actually stimulates your senses, so it beca- they, they become a lot more perspe- perceptive. Ketamine has been used perioperatively uh, in, in you know, thousands of patients. Uh, in, in looking at these retrospective studies uh, at, at a few thousand patients, tried to find out what happened when they used ketamine perioperatively. And what they found was that in sub doses, so they weren't using ketamine as their primary anesthetic. In sub-anesthetic doses, um, they found that it reduced opioid consumption. It reduced the need for opioids, especially specifically morphine, uh, right after the procedure. Um, it also re- uh, reduced the uh, util- utilization of morphine perioperatively for the, f- the next 48 hours. They saw a reduced acute pain. They saw a reduced chronic pain, um, and it, it, it implies that there is a, a peripheral as well as a central sensitization protection when they use that perioperatively, um, as well as reducing opiate induced hyperalgesia. So, could that potentially prevent some patients from being started on opioids or? reducing their need for opioids or allowing them to potentially discontinue their opioids at a timely manner after a procedure? Um, I think so, I think so. Uh, They also saw that ketamine applied around the time of surgery as a single infusion. It's even been reported to limit the development of chronic pain up to 180 days post-operatively. Ketamine and PTSD, we uh, initially, first time I used this for PTSD was back again in 2007 or 2008, so a long time ago. Uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, we've seen the same thing. We've seen PTSD uh, significantly reduced. Uh, we've seen it completely eliminated in some patients. Um, and, um, uh, you know, like all of our other infusions, they were well tolerated and, and with uh, uh, really no side effects afterwards. Uh, so, ketamine infusions, so, so what are they? Um, they are um, outpatient infusions, they can be inpatient as well. Uh, so they're inpatient and outpatient infusions. Uh, both of them have different protocols. Some of the inpatient infusions have protocols that could be uh, you know, 24 hours long. Some of them have been as, as long as five or seven days long where you're inpatient um, at a very low dose of ketamine. Um, and you're monitored in, in sort of an ICU or a step-down unit. The outpatient protocols, which is obviously what we do um, in our outpatient practice, are um, um, uh, outpatient infusions. The patient is awake. They're conscious. This is not general anesthesia at all. Uh, we're not using general anesthetics to knock them out. Uh, and those infusions can be anywhere from, uh, you know, we have, there, there are clinics out there that will do anywhere from 30-minute infusions uh, to 8-hour infusions. Um, ours ours are, are, you know, tend to be between 1 to, say, 4 hours, depending on the condition, depending on the patient and the condition they're presenting with. Um, there is no, so contrary to also some myths that are out there, there is no one dose. There is no one dose and there is no one specific rate based on weight. Um, this whole weight based um, protocol is, uh, it, it, it's, ultimately it doesn't make sense. Um, it's, it's, if you have any anesthesiologist in the, in the audience, uh, you know this when you go into the OR. Um, different patients have different requirements they may have different requirements of, of midazolam or fentanyl or even propofol or um, uh, inhaled anesthetics and it's not always weight-based um, different people just have different tolerances right and vegas is a great place to test that theory out <laughs> it really is right i mean you'll you'll see some of the youngest you know you'll see young thing thin, young thin females who can drink like a ton and then you'll see like big burly men and after one drink they're sta- st- you know staggering around um, and that's what we see in academy infusions truly what we see in academy infusions are uh, w- which makes no sense logically right because the books will tell you females take less than males right all the studies will say that the dosing for females is less than males right um, and and you know older people take less than younger people uh, or whatever uh, we've we've seen we've seen every th- some one of those theories shattered in fact if you take the top 10 Highest dose patients in our practice, they are all young, thin females, invariably. It's very odd. I can't tell you why. It might have something to do with mitochondrial RNA expression or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's, very, it's very interesting. Um, that said, it's also interesting that you know, um, at least 90% of fibromyalgia cases are female. Um, almost, almost all of our CRPS patients are female. So there's something going on neurophysiologically right this isn't a you know a a talk about you know genders or what's you know uh you know we're not trying to criticize anything or anything we're just having a discussion saying that observationally you're seeing a, a a huge preponderance in a category that's theoretically supposed to have less so what does that mean that means that those protocols that were invented by probably some some old guy who did have those myths um are are really untrue you have to individualize every single treatment and so uh, so again we you know we'll have uh, younger patients we have uh, patients uh, you know some some of them unfortunately are crps patients who are who are teenagers and their requirements i mean will blow you away and these are patients who want on, on no other medications right nothing um and then we'll have you know i've, I've got one guy he's a he's a 50 year old hockey player and i get i we have to use um we have to use half our starting dose, which is like a dose that, I mean, it's like a baby dose, and he was barely able to tolerate that. And then we have young teenagers who are tolerating doses that are five times higher than this hockey player, for crying out loud, right? Um, So point of that is, is these ketamine infusions have to be very customized, very personalized. You can't just outsource them. uh, they can v- vary in duration. They can vary in dosing. They can vary in adjunctive medications, which is super important. Uh, we can use up to eight different adjunctive medications during an infusion. And there is no rhyme or reason in, the, in, in what you're gonna use and how much you're gonna use. Some cases, we'll may, well, maybe we'll have to use virtually nothing. In other cases, we'll have to use vials and vials of other things. Um, it just depends on how that patient is responding and what their body needs at that time very much like doing an anesthetic in the OR. If you're doing an anesthetic in the OR and it's a complex case and you've got all these different variables, right, um, you, you can never ask the anesthesiologist the night before what he's gonna use. He going say, I don't know, I'm gonna use a little bit of all this, maybe. We'll see, we'll see how things go. That's a ketamine infusion too. The only difference is there's no surgery actually happening. Um, so, um, so we are seeing some growing awareness with ketamine infusions. We're seeing ke- now we're seeing uh, clinics popping up left and right um, which is um, which is great and it's scary right all of a sudden for years there were like no clinics around we were we were we were one of the we, we were the big we're still probably the biggest one in the Midwest but we were getting referrals from now just in our area we've like just random people opening up clinics and literally in a closet so I, I, I wouldn't advocate you know that right so uh, they will just shove a patient in a room unmonitored unmonitored um, and doing these infusions I think that's incredibly dangerous and irresponsible so That is not what a ketamine infusion is and because of that we're seeing these counterfeit infusion counterfeit clinics uh popping up we already have one in our area where um someone died okay they died because the guy who was doing it has no clue what he's doing and did not doesn't know how to do an infusion correctly a patient had depression uh god knows what he did but he actually um, the patient had was doing worse afterwards and killed himself so this is, you know, again, pain is a big deal, right? It's a lot more than feeling better. Pain is a disease in and of itself, and we don't treat it correctly, people, people die. So it's, it's important. Um, I, I also see that, um, you know, you know uh, we see almost this, uh, this, uh, you know, because this thing works, right? Just like say medical cannabis, uh, we've, we've seen that has been very helpful, but we're seeing two other sort of uh, problems emerging. And I think one is this potential ketamine epidemic. And we're already seeing this cannabis epidemic, there was an article I think in the New York Times just a week ago uh, talking about how um, uh, talking about you know pot addicts uh, who are taking medical cannabis, but they're so addicted that they're taking every single hour they're taking huge doses and they're just truly non-functional now at home. Could we see a ketamine epidemic where uh, patients and, and this is already happening, patients are being prescribed, you know decent amounts of ketamine to take themselves at home, which is effectively no different than you know going getting special K at one of the clubs here, right? Um, they're dosing it themselves, they're spraying it up And nasally, which is almost the same as IV um, at home themselves And we are seeing problems with that, we're seeing health issues with that We're seeing a lot of psychological issues um, So while ketamine is an amazing molecule, it has to be used responsibly It is ultimately an anesthetic Do you really want someone having control of an anesthetic at home and then driving? Does that put you at risk if you wrote for that? Questions to, to ask, right? So, we, we, we're, so those are some of the problems that we're seeing now, what are some of the challenges to treatment? Uh, number one, again, just this physician lack of education. I still run into so many physicians who um, refuse to believe science. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, stereotypes, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, that's that horse tranquilizer stuff, huh? And it's like, well, water is given to horses too. Maybe we should not use that. <laughs> um, it's silly, it's silly. We should, we should practice with science, not stereotypes. Um, egos, you know, so we have you know, physicians or other people in the community who they, they say, well, you know, if I didn't think of it first, then, then I'm not gonna advocate for it. Uh, laziness, you know, some people don't come to conferences like this, so thank you for coming, right? They don't come, they don't wanna sort of hear what, what sort of the science is behind it. Um, logistical issues, I mean, building out a real facility is like building out an OR, a recovery room, you know, staffing, pumps, monitors, oxygen, all that stuff, it costs a lot of money to do that. Complexity of the science, uh, you know, we touched on some of the science here. And, um, you know, I'm sure you can see that it's not just a one-trick pony. It's, it is a complicated molecule and a complicated science from a pathologic standpoint. Lack of coverage, right? Uh, insurance coverages are, are still not really covering this, and some are, but they pay so minimally that, um, I mean, you're better off just doing a regular old injection of some type because you'll make more money doing that. Um, you're actually better off just doing an office visit because an office visit will pay you more per hour than, than the infusion will. So, so there's still a lack of coverage. And, and minimal reimbursement. This is that little snippet that I was telling you about in the very beginning. Um, this comes directly from an anesthesiologist who's board certified, and he is in the Chicago area. And he treats patients with CRPS. He treats patients. Um, you know, his he, he treats patients. He's a he's an interventional pain physician. He's the head of the anesthesia program and the head of the fellowship program. So he teaches people. And this is what he wrote. Now, granted, this is what he wrote when he got paid, I'm sure, thousands and thousands of dollars to write this by an insurance company who wanted him to say that the the brain doesn't play a role in pain, and he did. So we call those guys IME whores. Um, That's not a 4 letter word, so I'm allowed to say that. Um, And I said in my deposition, too, so I'm uh, against this guy, so. Uh, (laughs) Uh, So in the United States, uh, there is some following, even absent FDA approval, which by the way, when was this approved? 1970. 1970, so, you know, this guy clearly hasn't read anything in a few years. Um, for the use of ketamine infusions in documented CRPS criteria meeting cases. You know, the patient did not meet diagnostic criteria for CRPS, which, by the way, she did. Therefore, the use of ketamine infusions was not indicated. So does that, does that make sense, right? For, uh, he's kind of contradicting himself here because he's saying it's not FDA is, is ketamine's not FDA approved, which it is. Um, procedures uh, there there is no approval for a procedure it's like saying it's like saying well propofol was not approved for that hernia surgery that's not how it works Um, and then he goes on to say that oh but by the way she didn't have this disease but if she did then we would do infusion so again that's like a contraindication right then he says she does not have quote central sensitization purely speculative diagnosis oh my god Really? You are saying that the brain doesn't exist, that it doesn't play a role in pain? Wow. Um, that's what he said, right? Uh, nor does she have peripheral neuropathy. All EMGs are normal. Um, central sensitization and peripheral neuropathy, as you probably know now, are very different things. This guy actually thinks that central sensitization and peripheral neuropathy are similar, and EMGs will tell you if you have central sensitization. That's not how it works. Therefore, she's not a cad- ca- candidate for infusion. So, I, 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 I list this, and actually, we had uh, earlier this year, um, the pa- we had the, the patient, it's a work comp case, and, and the patient had a deposition. Uh, and patient, by the way, totally wanted me to put this in the, in the slide. Um, I didn't list his name. Um, I could have, but I didn't. Um, and in the deposition, they actually said, did you, did you put this slide at the end of last, uh, last year's uh, pain week lecture? I'm like, hell yeah. I'm like, yes, I did. I did, and I'm very proud of it. And please submit it. Put this as evidence into your court case that this is your guy. Your guy thinks the brain doesn't exist. Maybe not in him, but in the rest of us it does. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming. Any, uh, any questions? Yeah, yeah. okay, so great question. So the, the question is, is, how many days in a row do we do ketamine infusions? There's a guy in Vegas who does like six weeks straight. Um, so I think six weeks straight is absolutely nuts. Uh, I think it's a great way to make money, and it's absolutely nuts. And I think it's dangerous because uh, you're loading the liver like crazy, um, and, uh, and you could cause potential liver issues. Uh, we do one infusion, and that's it. We do one infusion, we follow with the patient. In, lot, in most situations, one infusion will help 90 percent plus patients for over a week in many situations it'll help for a few weeks and in some situations months at a time so we'll follow up and we'll find out what does the patient need now there are some situations where the patient is in really bad shape and we will uh, the er, the earliest we'll do another infusion is one week later and that's worked for us for years Uh, so I, i don't I don't think you need to do one after another after another. Uh, some people do th- feel that way because they've seen results, which is fine, but we've seen results without doing it that way. Um, and um, you know, are we making less money? Yeah, probably. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing that we're definitely doing. We've seen zero side effects. We've seen zero liver function problems, zero failures, zero whatever. Right? Oh, so cystitis, so good, good question. Uh, we've seen a couple cases of cystitis. Well, not really cystitis, just afterwards, they had bladder irritation for a few days. Um, so it didn't, grow, it didn't progress to a full-out cystitis or a full-out you know, infection, but uh, they had bladder issues. Um, we, self-resolved. Yeah, that was self-resolved, right. Now, we, we had, uh, sometimes we had to put Foley catheters in the patients because they're sitting there for hours, and in those cases, some of those patients did develop like a little UTI, took whatever, and, and it resolved. Um, Uh, uh, what is the mechanism that we I don't know Um, we don't see a lot of cystitis again because of I think our conservative approach to this but we've seen a few and and a few on uh, just you know one infusion right a lower dose one infusion and then they get this bladder irritation Um, I can't explain it we have seen it uh, so there's definitely a mechanism there that we don't know about or we're not familiar with it's a a core medication uh to have any it's for a healthcare system right and and I think they're referring to that as a drug uh, not necessarily as an infusion uh so you know they'll they'll pay for the the drug all of whatever one or two dollars or whatever it is but you know the, the big cost of um of the infusion is labor right labor I mean when when you've got a whole team like we have a whole team I mean, we treat it like a surgery so we've got a whole team of people there for for hours you know four hours right with that patient um so there's overhead there's facility issues staffing you know overhead my overhead all that stuff that's really what costs a lot when you're doing infusions it's not you know the medications i mean all the equipment maybe it's a couple hundred bucks right in terms of disposables and whatever that's not really the big cost it's the labor um and it's the labor that they're not reimbursing and um they they may well they may reimburse you as an office visit but boy that's uh, that's a pretty lengthy office visit, you know, that, that you're not getting reimbursed for. So, um, and we do it in a surgery center and they don't reimburse the surgery center because they don't deem an infusion as surgery. So, so it's simple as simple as that. You know, once you've saved someone's life, how can you say no? I mean, and especially, especially since we've literally seen patients that we haven't treated, right? Uh, you know kill themselves right or just suffer at home i mean you know whether they're they're physically dead or just mentally dead inside by not being functional what's the difference i mean we, uh, we in, in this way, in the very beginning i introduced my I mean, i'm an interventionalist why would an interventionalist do something that's basically non-interventional that you get paid less to do because it works better than any of my interventions do it's that simple this works better than any of the stimulators i've put in for like crps it works better than any of the medications or whatever I mean, and that's what it comes down to right you know you know i think i think uh uh now uh, if you asked me a few years ago i'm not sure but now i think so because more and more people are do- well i think so and i also think that they won't more and more people are doing it so it's on the radar finally So something that they're like, oh gee, well, you know, gosh, if all these people are doing it, maybe it does work, maybe we should look at this again. Now, how much money can they save? Gosh, a ton, a ton. I mean, you know, just look at how much disability and all that stuff you might be reversing. Look at how many hospitalizations you might be reversing, right? How many people go to the hospital every week? I have a pain flare, I have a pain flare. If you could just reverse one of those pain flares, you could theoretically pay for a whole year's worth of ketamine infusions with just one ER visit. It's crazy um that being said i'm absolutely seeing the wild west emerging like wildfire with ketamine infusions just this year in the last year i think we have about nationwide about 400 new ketamine clinics have just popped up and and, and you know just like that like someone just wakes up one day and say oh here's a new business model um, now i'm sure some of them are good but but i don't know who's good and who's bad and that concerns me we saw the same exact thing like we're you know Looks like you and I, are, you know, we weren't born yesterday in this, in this world and, and especially not in medicine. We've seen this, we see it with opioids, we see it with all this other stuff. We've seen this before where you know clinics pop up left and right and say I'm a pain practice and then dole out a bunch of opioids and now all of us look bad because of what they did. Could that happen here where they're doling out scripts of ketamine, here's a troche, here's a nasal spray, here's a pill, go have at it you know, freely, four, 10 times a day, whatever. And then you know, doing all these infusions that are not monitored, that are not customized, creating a bad name. I absolutely see that. In fact, we're already seeing that. We are already seeing that. There's another clinic near us where uh, we've we've heard through other patients that patients had patients were basically comatose, an outpatient, drooling, and they've never been quite the same when they woke up. So I don't know if they had a mini stroke or a mini TI or what happened. This is stuff that I'm seeing, and you know, we we've kind of been. Very much front line for a year, so these complications we see. So I'm very concerned about that. So I think, yeah, they may cover it because there's increased awareness, but they may also withhold because they're saying, wait a minute, if we cover this, it's like a opening Pandora's box, and everyone might you know, capitalize on it. What sort of monitoring do you do? ASA monitoring. Yeah, we treat it just like a surgery. And what do do? Oh, sorry, hold on one second. Uh, discharge process, the same thing. We, it's literally, we treat it like a surgery. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. This is, this is literally a surgery without an incision. Yeah. Uh, we, we consent, absolutely. I don't know what the difference between a standard and informed is. Yeah, we we, it, we use a, our standard informed consent forms. Yeah, the same ones that we do when we do major procedures or surgeries or anything. Yeah, same thing. Go ahead. You those side effects, you right. But also like tolerability and certain So what say, like of Yeah, yeah, long term, right? Um, so short term, uh, you know, during the infusion, you might see side effects like, you know, whatever. Uh, blurry vision, um, hallucinations, uh, um, you know, dis- 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 dissociation, which is actually what we're kind of looking for anyway. Um, you know, blood pressure increase, heart rate increase, you know, things like that, right? Which is stuff we're expecting, so I don't think that's that's not a complication. Afterwards, uh, uh, nausea, vomiting, those are the most common things, in a couple patients, like you had said, uh, you know, cystitis. Uh, but after that, long term, we've like seriously seen you know really nothing. Go ahead. i never do and, and i'm a staunch anti-oral ketamine guy uh, because again if all the i mean it's an anesthetic i i just can't bring myself to prescribing an anesthetic to someone at home yeah, yeah so uh so yeah the question is treatment of central sensitization time sensitive um, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like anything else. If you can prevent that memory from happening, it's like one of those movies, right? Where if you, if you prevent that event from happening, you know, what are the, the subsequent, uh, uh, other things that you prevent? So yeah, if you can prevent it before the injury or during the injury or right after the injury, I think that's wonderful. Uh, that said, we've seen patients, uh, again, 10, 15 years out and we're still able to reverse. Like we got this one lady who, uh, who had fibro for 25 years, nothing helped, blah, blah, blah. Now she comes in once every year or two for an infusion. And that's all she needs. So But, yeah, you try to avoid it as much as you can. I had a patient come to me from another clinic because I was closer. And she had been going for a year at 800 milligrams once a week. And I told her I wasn't really. For 800 milligrams during um, what time? for infusion, 800 milligrams once a week for a year. Okay. But I mean like in an hour, or in, a, in two hours? Oh, four in a, hours. Four hours, okay. Um, and I told her I wasn't willing to continue that because I felt like if you have to do it every week at that dose, it's not helping. Yeah. It's clearly not working. Every week, huh? Every week. Okay. And what is that doing to your liver function, et cetera, et cetera. So she didn't return, but my question is, are there any studies on where are our upper limits? When should we be saying? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so the long-term, and, and this, is, this is also where there's that, I guess, confusion um, in terms of the safety of ketamine. Um, really, uh, so there, there are long-term studies that have shown that we haven't seen problems, but there's no long-term studies looking at ketamine from the way that, that we're talking about here with the infusions, right? These are long-term studies just saying you know ketamine during anesthesia or whatever the case is. Um, they really only had one study that was done on rats where they gave them, like, I don't know, it was like two times a toxic dose or something like that, and they say, oh, their liver has got damaged. So I was like, what do you think, you know? Um, so I think that study was just poorly done. I don't really put much credence in that study, except for the fact that, yeah, if you give too much, you're going to have liver problems. But what drug does it cause that? Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if she'll tolerate that or not. So there are patients whose true requirements are that high. Um, and... Yeah, reasonable, like well, Well, so... Patients. Yeah, so okay, so I saw a patient who came in just on Friday, uh, from, flown from California to see us in Chicago. She had done ketamine infusions with the guy in California who um, is very, very well known for it because he spent a lot of money PRing himself. He's on TV and he says he's like you know God or whatever. Maybe he is, but that's not what she said. Uh, what she said was the experience was horrible. He never even showed up. He just had like some nurse, you know, just they, they had preemptively already chosen a dose and she just started it and then never showed up again. Um, that's not how infusion is done she had done those mel- many times it never worked for her so when i saw her for the first time uh, she was already on i believe 80 milligrams an hour or something and she said she felt nothing so I said, okay gee well maybe we should start at a dose higher than that we started at a dose higher than that um, and um, and immediately she said this feels very different than anything else i've ever had and then just you know it, within an hour into it she was like totally dissociated like like she was fine but she was like i try to get them to a level where they're just right you know what i'm talking about right they're just there not where they're like so out of it but just just there because you, then you know you have that disconnection i don't need to like it's like water and fire i just need enough to put the fire out i don't need to like dump you know 100 extra gallons right um so we backed it down we actually backed it down and, and we got to a point where we we're even under the 80 and and even still she was like this is like nothing i've ever felt before so I guess my question would be, and and you know what she she said. She said, you know, I think they were using some compounded ketamine. I think they were using, she she actually said this to me, that she thought they were using some BS ketamine, like a counterfeit ketamine or whatever. Um, So she's not even sure they were using that. And then on top of that, they were mixing that with propofol, which is like just stupid. I mean, just stupid. It just tells you that they really don't know what they're doing. Um, You don't use a freaking general anesthetic for an outpatient like when you're in the uh, recovery area, or and his wasn't even done like us. His was in the, in an office, where she wasn't even he wasn't even there. It was a nurse that was there. Like that's just stupid. I mean, if, if there was a malpractice case, I would I would fry him in a minute. guess it's just irresponsible, right? So point of that is though, you know, um, I don't even what were they using? Were they even using um, like a legitimate type of ketamine? You know, we kind of went over the structures in this particular lecture. I left out a lot of the the. The the structural information because the slides were kind of getting long. But you know, you have it's a racemic mixture. I mean, you you know, bad mixtures are going to have more R ketamine than S ketamine. We're not going to know any of that. We just kind of rely on hopefully the credibility of the brand. What are they using? I don't know what they're using. Did the guy even show up? You know um, was he using adjunctive medications adjunctive medications really do play a role it's like giving someone chicken noodle soup with just water and no salt or spices like it tastes crappy right it's the adjunctive stuff that really makes the chicken noodle soup it's not the chicken or the noodles it's really the broth (laughs) Um, so you have to have the right you know mixture of, of things and so i don't know maybe that person didn't have it who knows also where are they also getting everything else, right? We had listed, uh, what, 20 other things you can do for patients with central pain. I mean, are you just doing ketamine infusions? Because that's a great reset button. So for that week, she has a great reset. What's she doing with that reset? And that's all she wanted to do. Yeah, so, so I think there are a lot of questions potentially to, to, to ask there. Um, but, you know, is, is that safe or not? So let's just assume. Let's assume that this is, like, the best provider, and he's, he's doing everything, and she's doing everything, and this is all... That's helping her yeah. um, then at that point then yeah maybe that is a decision that you Say you know what this is definitely you know You're definitely one of the the, the high utilizers of this but We have nothing else to offer you and at that point maybe the, the You know benefit outweighs the risk at that point right Yeah yeah, yeah. so so topical ketamine especially for you know, neuropathic pain or Peripheral sensitization has been has been very helpful and and again the difference between topical ketamine versus like a nasal spray or oral I mean obviously totally different route of administration totally different dosing so that that I'm totally cool with I think that's a great idea. That was basically my question okay. I'm a hospice nurse and we use topical ketamine yeah. for severe wound one Exactly. One. Yeah. Yeah because you're you're affecting the peripheral nociceptors and, um, and 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 kind of preventing or hopefully you know winding down that peripheral sensitization and then that will connect, obviously, to the brain eventually, and tell the brain, "Hey, maybe this problem is actually getting better." So, absolutely, think it's a great idea. Go ahead. With the, uh, NMDA receptor, I'm sorry. With the with the NMDA receptor, yeah. Uh, yeah. Funny you mention that. I've thought about that for a while. Um, I, I think there's a role. Uh, I don't have the guts to be the first to do that in case I, you know, fry out something in the central the nervous system. Uh, so if you do try it out, please let me know. Um, but here's the bigger thing. I, I mean, I just, I just don't know how that molecule interacts with the central nervous system. I don't know, and I, I don't know if you could just, I don't think you could just take a bottle off the shelf, right, it's got who knows what in it. Um, but I think there is, I absolutely think there is, um, but I, I don't want to be the first to experiment with it. Um, ketamine as an intrathecal option, like an intrathecal pump option, epidurally but not intrathecally yeah, Who's doing intrathecal? Dr. Okay. He's doing intrathecal academy? Well, good for him. Sweet. <laughs> so there you go. He's got cojones. <laughs> yeah, and it is probably wor- is it helping or? Ah! I wonder why. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We, we were the first in the world to do it Really? Yeah and it's Mm-hmm, yeah Have you got insurance that you pay for it? No Do you call it CRPS? No, we, we, they pay out of pocket Got it Yep, yep, that was our, um, it was a medical hypothesis with one journal And uh, I forgot what it was, we had it published a few times Yep, yep, it was in 08 I believe we had a couple, yeah, we had a couple. Um, uh, we had some case reports that we published as well as the actual um, uh, description of the mechanism of action. Because, so, you know, you can publish those case reports, and obviously, you know, this it, is crazy. Like, all the, other, all the colleagues in your area are just like, oh, you're whacked out. And so we published the, def, the description, and they're like, you're still whacked out. And it's like, whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, no, it it. Uh, a ganglion work for PTSD. Again, through a similar mechanism, right, um, centrally. You know, not peripherally. And, and the mere fact that that would work just shows you again that this, this delague ganglion block is not a peripheral block. It's a central block, right? So, Do you have any with, uh, uh, we, we don't. We don't. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good, good question. And, and, and I've been curious about that too. We just haven't had, um, had our patient population, we don't see sickle patients in our patient population, so. Yeah. Yeah. So adjunctive medications, uh, uh, you know, we you, you need to have uh, typically some type of benzodiazepine. Versed midazolam t- seems to be the most commonly used because of its predictability uh, from an anesthetic standpoint. Um, you need to have some type of antiemetic or antiemetics. Um, sometimes you'll need more than one. Um, so Zofran being the most common, but we'll typically use potentially a variety of other things. Uh, we use um, some type of alpha adrenergic synthetically b- blocking agents, so some people use clonidine, we use Presidex. Um, uh, uh they may some people will need um, uh, pain medication in the form of anti-inflammatories, iV specifically, you know whether it's um, IV NSAIDs or or uh, say an IV acetaminophen, which obviously is not an NSAID um, uh, Some patients, some patients will even need pain medication in the form of an opioid not because it's synergistic with with ketamine but simply because they can't lay they can't lay there and um you got to give them something they can't lay there right so so little things but that's what i mean little things like there's nothing to do with infusion but like if someone is saying specifically something to you um, you have to respond to it you know so um, that's where the 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 responsiveness comes in and and i and i think that's where um that's where you have to be. I think you have to be there. You have to be there constantly to address that, to have, you know, a smooth infusion. So, is that it? Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll start, uh, well... Um, you know, uh, even that, even that, some of that sometimes is gestalt, uh, really, uh, truly. I mean, sometimes you just look at someone and you'll say, you know what, I just I just have a bad feeling about you. I just think that you're gonna be one of those people that's gonna wig out a little more and then we'll start them lower. But we've started, started patients as low as, um, let's see, what would that be? You know, like point th- you know, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram per hour uh, to point five milligrams per kilogram per hour. So let's say like point two five to point five milligrams per kilogram per hour. Um, so we're usually starting somewhere in that range. Um, but then, it, it from, but then, it, you know, it, who knows what happens at that point because it's all based on how that patient's responding. So, um, you know, it, I, I'm translating it as a weight-based protocol for you, okay. but uh, but no, it actually has nothing to do with weight. It has to do more with what. I truly think I, I It sounds crazy But what I truly think um, They're going to look like And I, I Can't give you any better It's just a gestalt Like You know You could translate to a weight based Because we're always going to start lower So we You know so It'll usually be in that range But it has nothing to do with weight So like For example Sometimes a lot of the men May actually be on the lower end of that The women may be on the higher end The skinny people are on the higher end The fat people are on the lower end uh, Because of Of, of just you know the conversation is getting to know that patient you know i've always told patients when i when i when we do these infusions i'm getting to know you from a neurobiological standpoint and that's really what it is so it's guessing their neurobiology has nothing to do with weight it has to do with what i how they, i think their brains ticking and um and and you know wh- the craziest part of it all is like seriously like 99% of the time you get it right so there's some you know there, i don't know what it is but there's some type of it's like that's you get that sense just like with other things right in medicine You kind of just get a sense of what is appropriate for that patient uh, and same, same thing here um, But yeah if you had to translate to a way to be somewhere between